Please turn in your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 8. So look at this portion of scripture that is often misquoted or taken out of its context, giving the impression that we are not to judge instead of the biblical view that we are to judge in the way that God has called on us to judge. John chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted, him, lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and when they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. May God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. Do you, any of you believe that conspiracy theories exist? Well, yes, they exist. Do you believe in the truth of conspiracy theories? Are you someone that may have about 14 people that send you conspiracy theory emails and be honest, I have a tendency to not open them up. And it's not as if all of these theories are incorrect, but we do have to be careful, and this is a serious thing, we have to be careful that we do not spread conspiracy theories about people when we have not actually confirmed the truth of what is being said. Otherwise, we are in danger of God's judgment because we are not to be bearing false witness against our neighbor. And even if we do not like someone, and even if we found them, find them to be the most despicable person that we have ever seen in our entire life, it does not give us the excuse 
to just say what we want about them and just say, well, hey, even if it isn't true, they've done a lot of other things, obviously, that are probably much worse, so it's okay for me to do that. On the other hand, there are such things as conspiracies. We sang Psalm, uh, Psalm 1, well, we only have to go down to Psalm 2 where we read, why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now, if that isn't a, if that isn't a conspiracy, I don't know what is. We can safely say that evil men have and will conspire against Christ and his church. As we have seen, historically speaking, powerful and wicked men, both within and without on the outside of the church, use evil means in an attempt to get what they want. Let's look at the background to some of the background to our text that comes right before in John chapter 7, verse 40. In John chapter 7, verse 40, we see that many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto him, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth not our law, or doth our law, judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. In verses 40 through 44, we see that the people were split over who Jesus was. And then in verses 45 through 49, we see people who are blind and insulting. They don't mind throwing insults, but they are blind spiritually. What is sad is that they are religious leaders. They're religious leaders of the church. These people do not know the law like we do, seems to be the attitude. 
Are you officers like these ignorant, cursed people? Important leaders and learned, godly people like us have not fallen for this schismatic. Of course, who's that schismatic? Jesus. People need to follow our example, unlike these ignorant fools. We have studied the law and come to these conclusions about Jesus. We know the truth about him. It seems to be the attitude that these religious leaders as a whole have concerning Jesus. And then once again in verses 50 through 52, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Nicodemus had the courage to stand up and say that the law of God requires an appropriate hearing before one is judged. Now, does this statement by Nicodemus perhaps imply that these so-called ignorant people and officers who have given Jesus an informal hearing have been more in touch with the meaning of the law than these teachers of the law? I would say so. So how will the religious leaders respond to this biblical logic? How do ungodly people often respond to biblical logic? Of course, attack the man. Don't deal with the, what's going on. Attack the person. Repent? No, attack the man. Deal with truth? Give truth a chance? No, attack the man. You are bad? My proof for the fact that you are bad? Because I say you're bad. Today we hear things like, you are a racist. Why do you say something like that? Because I say you're a racist. That's all the proof you need. Nicodemus is ignorant and is sinning. Why? Because we say Nicodemus is ignorant and sinning. A kangaroo, a kangaroo court setting that shows us glimpses of what will eventually happen to Jesus right before he is crucified. Some of you know what a kangaroo court is. But if you don't, and that's understandable, kangaroo court is a court setting in which the verdict is determined from the very beginning. Doesn't matter what the evidence is, doesn't matter anything is going to come before the court, the verdict is predetermined. Some while back, and I'm not saying this would you see, it was necessarily a good idea, nor a bad one. But a friend of mine was in court, and he realized he was in a kangaroo court situation. And he, started jump, he started basically imitating a kangaroo. That did not go over well with the judge, believe me. But a kangaroo court is what, the type of thing that we're looking at here. The verdict is already a foregone conclusion. 
Evil men who happen to be religious leaders are out to get Jesus. Then in verse 53, and every man went into his own house. And then we move into chapter 8, our text. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Do you ever notice how exciting things seem to happen when Jesus comes to the temple area? Well, this time's not going to be any different. What a privilege it was for people to be able to learn from the very mouth of Jesus, the very mouth of God. But there will be a great interruption that we just read about. Now, if you're going to interrupt God, I would think you better have a good excuse. This had better be an emergency. It isn't. But it will sound like one, starting with verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And then the first part of verse 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. There's some real problems with this attempt to bring charges against Jesus, to make Jesus look bad. They bring a woman caught in adultery. Where's the man? Number one, where is the man? Secondly, where is the verdict? If she's going to be stoned, where is the verdict? A trial with the testimony of at least two witnesses, a verdict, and a penalty, a judicial penalty. No verdict, no penalty. I thought it was supposed to be, biblically speaking, innocent unless proven otherwise. Innocent unless proven guilty. So where's the man? Where's the verdict? Thirdly, the treatment of the vulnerable. This woman is publicly humiliated. And I take it she is scared to death. And she's clearly being used as a pawn. Even the guilty deserve a fair trial and biblical treatment. We know after the fact that she is guilty. It's not a question, biblically speaking, of whether she is guilty or not. And it's not even a question of what she deserves. But as far as the court is concerned, without a trial, there is no judicial guilt. I do not know much about this, how much this woman might know or not know about Jesus, but we know that Jesus stood for the original intent of the law. And the original intent, which had not and has not changed, called for death to one who is judicially guilty of adultery. This woman is being used by the scribes and Pharisees in order to get what they want. Why are they in such a big hurry to bring her to Jesus, who is teaching, 
instead of appropriately dealing with the situation themselves. Why don't they do things biblically? And not only was this woman in a vulnerable position, Jesus was seemingly put in a vulnerable situation as well. He's not really vulnerable because he's God, but at the same time, seemingly, they don't believe that he's God. They are putting him in a seemingly vulnerable position. We can see time after time in Scripture about the sin of mistreating the vulnerable. Fourth problem, using the word of God and his law in order to entrap Jesus. They were literally tempting the Son of God to sin. They were doing what Satan had done in the wilderness some time before. If Jesus declares that this woman should be stoned, then he's in trouble with Rome. If Jesus says that she should not be stoned, then he is in potential trouble with the scribes, the Pharisees, as well as the people who have been following him, since Jesus does, after all, stand for the original intent of the law. Problem number five, without a legitimate court judgment, putting the woman to death would be murder. But she was guilty. Still, biblically speaking, without a legitimate court judgment, putting the woman to death would be murder. Now let's look at the second part of verse six. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Do we really know what Jesus is doing here in this verse? Not for sure. I know I'm not. Is Jesus writing down embarrassing sins of the men who have brought the woman? Or was all of this a total setup? where the men knew about the adultery or even somewhat encouraged the adultery that was going on and knew that the woman was going where the woman was going to be. And thus Jesus was writing about this conspiracy in the dirt. Possibly, I don't know. How many of you have been treated very badly by someone who should have known better? And it was a tremendous emotional shock. Now, intellectually, you may not have been shocked at all because you expected that sort of thing based on your assessment of the person. But still, even though you realized that it was very much in character for that person to treat you that way, you were still emotionally blown away. Knowing something will happen or may happen does not necessarily do much to cushion the blow emotionally. Even if you knew 10 minutes before an auto accident that you, that you were going to get into a very bad auto accident, 10 minutes later you're still going to be very much shaken up, even though you theoretically knew that it was going to happen. Knowing something will happen or may happen does not necessarily do much to cushion the emotional blow. 
Well, Jesus is God, and he knew what these men were capable of. Could it be that he reacted in the way that he did, at least partially due to the emotional shock of seeing people who were supposed to be godly leaders of the church act this way? I don't know. And we see soon afterwards that Jesus writes again. Why? I don't know. At this point, you may, may be saying, Pastor, don't you know anything? <laughs> I do know one thing. Jesus reacted in a meek manner. He kept his strength under control. There is, among other things, one thing that can really upset ungodly people who try to trap godly people with a question or a set of rapidly fired questions. And that is... Silence. Silence. Confident, calm, godly silence. This confident, calm, godly silence, which we also see in verse 8, is something that we can learn from Jesus. Jesus is being attacked in a not-so-subtle manner by multiple enemies. He responds with confident Calm, godly silence. I don't know what Jesus was writing in the, dirt, in the dirt, but I do know that he kept his strength under control. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Never forget that. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. They kept questioning Jesus. Ungodly people often demand an answer right now. They deserve an answer right now. And it can be so tempting to lash out in an unbiblical manner. And in doing so, lower yourself to their level. Jesus seems to be in a vulnerable position and is definitely outmanned as far as numbers are concerned. But remember the word meekness, keeping one's strength under control. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, he who that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Under Old Testament law, the one casting the first stone did not have to be without sin. But these men are guilty of this grotesque setup. Without a legitimate court judgment, putting the woman to death would be murder. There would be only one person who could legitimately throw the first stone and that person would be God. God does not need a court verdict in order for him to pronounce judgment and actually put the person to death. So what I believe what Jesus is saying is, who of you claims to be God? Who of you claims to be 
God, because God is the only one who, biblically speaking, would be able, biblically, to put her to death. Who of you claims to be God? Jesus did not come to this earth at this particular time to be a civil judge or an ecclesiastical judge who judges people and hands down verdicts and penalties. Verse 8, 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, confident, calm, godly silence. Again, pastor, what did he write? I don't know. I don't know what he wrote, but we see meekness. Notice that Jesus is in charge of the situation. The perverse sin of these religious leaders in taking advantage of an adultery situation, along with the mistreatment of this woman and using scripture to their own advantage, along with the underlying idea that they could have been involved in the murder of this woman might be more than even these ungodly men's consciences could take. And maybe the scribes and Pharisees also realized that they had been given a sound thrashing. Verse 9, And when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And they left. This is not to say that the original audience of Jesus was still not there, but the scribes and the Pharisees are gone. These men should have been convicted in the courts of their own consciences. And we know that scripture states that they were convicted by their consciences. They'd been convicted. They had been exposed. We do know that these men had been outmaneuvered. They came to accuse Jesus, and guess what? They left convicts. I wonder what kind of report they filled with the, that they filed. What kind of report do you think they may have filed with the other religious leaders who were not there at the time? Who were not there at the time to see their pathetically sinful effort to crush Jesus? Innocent unless proven guilty. Consider the range of emotions this woman must have gone through. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are, th where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Kangaroo court is no longer in session. Where are your accusers? Well, they've left as convicts. Was there a sentence? Verse 11, she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The only person who theoretically could have legitimately sentenced her did not come to this earth to be 
an earthly civil judge. Jesus did not come to this earth at this particular time to be a civil judge or an ecclesiastical judge who judges people and hands down judicial verdicts. Jesus knows that she is both judicially innocent and at the same time guilty of the act of adultery. Jesus does not pronounce judicial judgment Neither does he pronounce her morally innocent. Go and sin no more. Godly mercy on the part of Jesus leads to a challenge, a command. Go and sin no more. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes, on the other hand, leave embarrassed, unforgiven, and condemned by their own sinful actions. When it's all over, Jesus was not the one who was soft on sin. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were soft on sin, and that being their own sin. Notice that these sinful leaders of the church left the woman after using her much like a man who uses a prostitute. These men, like many of their ungodly predecessors in the Old Testament period, were guilty of spiritual adultery by not keeping covenant with Jehovah. But they took things a step further by attempting to embarrass and condemn God in the flesh. And while their consciences may have been at least part of the reason that they left, Jesus, as we see that they were part of the reason why they left, Jesus and the woman, left Jesus and the woman by themselves, we see no signs of true repentance. And this awful occurrence that we have been studying did not prevent them from continuing to go after Jesus with a vengeance. Taking advantage of a vulnerable woman and using scripture to their own advantage with no real regard for justice and truth, while attempting to trap Jesus, who is God, who they have been conspiring against, and who they will later murder, shows what a sad state of affairs the church was in during the ministry of Jesus. The Pharisees had started out as reformers. If you go back decades and decades before this time, the Pharisees had started out as reformers before this present narrative, who had tried to get Israel back to the truth and back to the covenant. But now we flash forward, and the, these, and the Pharisees, the descendants of these ones who had fought for truth, had become what their ancestors had fought against. Evil men with evil goals and in evil intentions. Yes, these men did conspire together to defeat one seemingly vulnerable man. And finally, after multiple defeats, put this man to death after they had a kangaroo court. But through everything, Jesus never lowered himself to his accuser's level. 
He kept his strength under control, even at the point of being on the cross when he theoretically could have wiped out all of his enemies with one word. Instead, he chose to stay on that cross of shame and humiliation and endure the unimaginable pain and suffering at the hands of his heavenly father so that the triune God would be glorified and that his chosen people would, like the adulterous woman, not be sentenced even though we all, like the adulterous woman, deserved it. What should we do and how should we think when we are put into a situation like Jesus was placed by these religious leaders? One, use scripture. Use scripture. Remember what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan? Who was using scripture? And I mean using scripture, misusing scripture. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? He used scripture. Do not misuse scripture to your advantage. Even if you're being attacked, never use scripture in a sinful way. Properly use scripture for the glory of God. Secondly, you do not necessarily have to follow their narrative. You do not necessarily have to answer their questions just because they're asked. I'm not saying it's wrong to answer questions, but there are times when we do not have to answer the question. Think of the example of Jesus when he was asked a question about John the Baptist, and he answered that question with a question. Remember that, th number three, remember that there are times when we need to let God handle the situation. Follow biblical principles, such as biblical confrontation, but never decide that you are going to be judge, jury, and executioner. Number four, don't, do not take things into your own hands by doing things your own way and thus lowering yourself to the sinful level of others. It does not matter what anyone is doing to you. Never lower yourself to that level. Number five, obeying and glorifying God is primarily important, not our reputation. Now, that doesn't mean it's, that it's a wrong thing to defend your reputation, but the glory of God always comes first. There are some times when we just have to take it. Be meek. Keep your strength under control. Have someone with you when biblically appropriate to witness the event and consult with. And take time to think and be silent and pray if you're able. Number six, remember that Jesus will win. Number seven, we win through Jesus. Number eight, eventually, like the religious leaders, evil people will be defeated. And sometimes that defeat will be seen in true repentance or even regeneration. Remember in the book of Acts, how many priests repented? How many priests became part of the kingdom? Remember Paul, who was a what? A Pharisee. 
Number nine, make sure that you get to know your Bible well. And do not be too proud to go to your elders for biblical wisdom. Some of us old people actually may know a lot and have a lot of wisdom, but remember that some of that wisdom has come by doing stupid stuff when we were younger. Take advantage of our knowledge and wisdom. Don't let the dumb stuff that we have done go to waste. I, for one, have regrettably made some very poor decisions when confronted by ugly situations. Learn how to not make the same mistakes. And finally, one of the best ways to witness about what Christ has done for you is doing the biblically correct thing when you are under extreme pressure. Remember the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example that your Son gave to us of doing the right thing no matter what, putting you first, putting the gospel first, putting your kingdom first. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will follow that example and that when we don't, we will confess our sin to you. And as painful as it may be, go to the person who we sinned against and ask them for forgiveness and try to make things right, despite the fact that they did things that were much, much worse against us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your Holy Spirit. We pray that if anyone here not be regenerate, your Holy Spirit would change them. They would repent and have faith in your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.